Greetings and welcome to Complexity Talk Radio, Complexity Live with your host, Dr. Donna Maria Colbreth. You may call us to share your thoughts, to pose a question, or to give a general comment by dialing 914-338-1308. And now, Dr. Colbreth. Good evening, listeners, and welcome to Complexity Talk Radio, Complexity Live. I'm your host, Dr. Donna Maria Curtis, and we're coming to you live straight from New Jersey. Today is Thursday, December 28, 2017, a few more days left in this year. I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday, and that you have a wonderful new year. Well, it's good to be back on the air. We've been off for a while. To those of you, my, list, my listeners and followers, um, I want to thank you, first of all, for the well wishes. Um, when I suffered my spinal injury, I'm bouncing back. I'm walking. That's the good news. Um, overall, we have a lot of good ideas and plans that are coming up um, for next year, and I'll share those with you during the announcements at the end of the show. But today, what I want to talk to, our topic today, we're going to focus in on sexual harassment, assault, molestation, and girls and women of color. I'll focus in on listeners is looking at the fact that you know, oftentimes our victims, their their experiences are downplayed. They're deemed invisible. Their voices are not heard, or there's either the silence. So tonight we have a panel of guests, um, a group of phenomenal women, who we're going to have a dialogue, discussion, roundtable, whatever you want to call it, and we really just talk about some of the issues. We're going to really focus in on the psychological, emotional, physical. And social is, you know, well-being, growth, the issues that girls and women of color deal with when they experience, you know, the assault, the rape, the harassment. So what I wanted to do first, before we even get started, is take a few minutes and introduce each one of my guests to um, briefly go over their bios, with, and then we'll bounce into the show. So sit back, put your seatbelt, and let's get ready for an awesome ride. And I'm going to introduce our guest in alphabetical order. My first guest is Dr. Nikita Castillo. Dr. Castillo is a native of, native of Jamaica. He's an educator who earned a bachelor's in social work, master's in marital and family, as well as a doctorate of marital and family therapy. Her employment experiences include serving as a therapist for a traditional housing shelter in Loma Linda, California, She's worked as a clinical coordinator of a foster care program for Riverside County Department of Education and Loma Linda University. She's also worked as a clinical therapist for the Riverside County Department of Mental Health, and she teaches in the Department of Counseling and Family Services at LLU. Currently, Dr. Castillo teaches in the School of Arts and Sciences and directs three psychology campus programs at Brandon University. In addition to being a published scholar, a prolific writer, a diligent teacher, and a powerful leader, Dr. Costello is a licensed natural and family therapy therapist who specializes in working with the un- unserved and underserved population. In addition, she enjoys with the homeless population. Dr. Castillo's research focuses on community, 
mental health and interventions for the severely mentally ill. In addition to developing training programs for clinical providers, our interests also include providing the best form of mental health services in the minority population, working with the severely mentally ill on issues of spirituality in the therapy room, training for integration to serve and students in higher education. He enjoys teaching and conducting and uh, developing and presentations that provide to the public on the differences, difference rather, between mental health and illness. She is passionate about educating individuals on how to increase suffering and increase hope. My next guest is Dr. Michelle Montecalvo. Dr. Montecalvo is a health educator by academic training and a born urban educator. Starting her career in health education as a peer educator in the Jersey City, New Jersey, and safer sex kids to add risk herself. She was able to thrive because of strong, powerful, meaningful female mentors. Stumbling often and often um, using failures to push forward in many adversarial time as a physician or to continue the body autonomy sensual sexual pleasure and culturally competent medical engagement. Advocating for and with others has been her driving. Today she's an assistant professor of healthcare management and health mission at the esteemed St. Francis Heights, New York. Um, it's been a wild experience and completely worthwhile journey. She's also the mother of twin boys. Her first priority is to with understanding of for all women. With over 15 years' experience in formal and informal teaching, health, and medical-related subjects, Dr. Montecalvo loves creating creative projects, rather, innovative health technology, and enhancing health care the eyes of the user. Dr. Montecalvo has a determined vision to engage restorative justice and gratitude for all women to help us rise together. Our next guest is Ms. Loretta Moore, who's an African-American female writer who resides over Delaware. He's married, the mother of three and grandmother of eight, multi-published author with and plays to her credit. Other published works include essays and short stories in several magazines and presently two of her plays are in the hands of Philadelphia, PA, and Roanoke, Virginia. He has a college degree in English and received theory and theatrical recognition and awards. Miss Moore brings to an honor society, belongs, I'm sorry, to an honor society, organizations and volunteers in a community and church. To her credit, her latest books are The Color of Murder, The Light of Day, The Way of Love, Bottom Tales, and others. Our next guest is Dr. Lada Murthy. Dr. Murthy is an associate professor of sociology for the School of Arts and Sciences at University. She led the revision of the Bachelor of Arts and Sociology program, designing a competitive and cutting-edge curriculum with practical and professional relevance. She's a recipient of Brandman's 2015 Outstanding University Faculty Award, has received recognition for and her from organizations such as National Institute of Learning Outcomes, the National Center for Interdiversity, 
experience of immigrant doctors for the 2015 Annual Excellence Award. Dr. Murthy's research and writing focuses on the reality of social issues. And I wanted to add in to Dr. Murthy's bio that is through her hard work and effort that she was able to help me put together the panel for today. So, Dr. Murthy, thank you very much for all of your assistance and your help. Our next guest is Ms. Yvonne M. Taylor. M. Ms. Taylor is a writer, educator, strategic communicator, and mother. She earned a B.A. in English with a minor in psychology from the University of Houston and a Master of Liberal Arts degree from Southern Methodist University. She has worked as a communicator in various roles in higher education for businesses, large and small, and in the media. A former high school principal and community college English instructor, Ms. Taylor has written essays and op-eds for what's the XO Jane and the Houston Chronicle. Her most recent topics cover the removal of the Confederate statues from the public squares and expanding the Me Too campaign to include men. And, of course, I don't really need to introduce Dr. John Kim, who is my partner in crime and my business partner. Um, everybody knows Dr. John Kim is our co-host and VP of Programming with Complexity Talk Radio, also the editor of the Colorism Journal, um, partner with Colbert Jung and Severino, and the CEO of I Am Beautiful Global. He's also the VP of the National Girls and Women's Council. And what else I got to say, also, I'm sorry, co-author of Live Beautiful Affirmations for Girls of Color, editor of Living Life Fabulous Affirmations for Women of Color, and actually came up with a brilliant idea of our upcoming anthology, our stories. So everybody, in welcoming all of our guests. Ladies, thank you and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, does anyone, before, what I would like to do before we really get started is to actually go in, and for our listeners only, to just give like an overview or the definition for our listeners as to what we're talking about when we talk sexual harassment, assault, rape. Um, it's important that we have the definitions because in a conversation the other day, I, you know, discovered that, that there are times when some of us, you know, we realize that a situation is actually a case of sexual harassment. So I think that's important. So according to the Connecticut State Sexual Violence, the definition comes from, when we talk about sexual harassment, and I'm saying this in quotes, it's the unwelcome sexual advance, request for sexual favors, and other verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature, sexual harassment. Now, whether it's like with submission or, or rejection of this conduct, explicitly or implicitly affects an individual's employment when it unreasonably interferes with an individual's work performance or it creates an intimidating, hostile, or offensive work environment. And that's important to know. Now, when it comes to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, they offered additional on what constitutes sexual harassment. And I'm going to share those with you as when we're talking about the sexual harassment, especially in the workplace, 
you know, the conduct of the offender has to be offensive and unwelcomed by the victim. Harassment can still occur when there's no economic injury to a discharge of the victim. And the victim and harasser may be a man or a woman. And the victim does not have to be of the opposite sex. That's important to know. So when we talk about sexual harassment, we know there's quid pro and hostile work environment. I'm just going to briefly go over quid pro quo. This form of sexual harassment occurs when a supervisor, when an authority, or a position, requests sex or a sexual relationship, and is not firing or otherwise punishing the employee. Need for favors such as a promotion or a raise. When we talk about the hostile work environment, the sexual harassment that occurs through the presence of demeaning or sexual photograph, sexual um, harassment, and it's and it's really interesting because this form of sexual harassment, you know, you're talking about listeners looking at a photograph. It could be an email, um, jokes, or even threats. The inappropriate behavior conduct has or pervasive as to, you know, let's say, as the name implies, to create an intimidating and offensive work environment. So there you have the sexual harassment. You know, in a brief little nutshell, we'll discuss it more in greater detail later and give you examples of what that consists of. With regard to sexual assault, assault, it is defined as a general term that includes sexual harassment, unwanted sexual contact, child sexual incest and rape. Sexual contact becomes an assault when unable to or does not consent any form of activity. We have rape, you know, a crime of aggression, power, and control in which one person forces, coerces, or manipulates another person's sexual intercourse without their consent. Rape includes vaginal, oral, or anal penetration by any object, including fingers, and also includes forced oral. Now, when we move from those areas of talking to sexual violence, um, according to the Women of Color Network, we know that we have rape. Um, we have the sexual coercion and the unwanted sexual. When we start looking at racism and sexual assault, defined by the Women of Color Network as sexism and racism are both oppression. And the intersection of these attitudes make women of color particularly susceptible to violence. They also make it difficult for women of color to access support services or receive fair treatment with the criminal justice system. So having said all of that and discussed um, my, to my, my guess, my question to you is, we all know that in recent weeks, months, we've heard about the numerous issues involving women of color's experiences being minimized or really not recognized where their voices are not being heard. It's an invisibility issue. So my question is this. According to Karen Attia, the Washington Post global editor, she noted that women of color as victims of sexual harassment, assault, etc., were excluded from national narratives 
and the conversations about sexual harassment, assault, rape, etc. Why are women of color excluded from these national narratives about these issues? Anybody care to jump in? Um, this is Yvonne Taylor, and um, I think that this culture continues to view um, view women as white by default. Um, I think that we hear this in the discourse when media and commentators refer to quote-unquote women and people of color. Um, in that expression, um, women by default are white and black, brown, um, women of color are lumped in with people of color. And um, I think that this is like in large part due to um, white supremacist mythology of sacred white womanhood that glorifies white women and their purity and that that's juxtaposed with how black women in particular are often viewed as more masculine, animalistic, and even unclean. And that comes, that's a legacy of slavery. Um, and so if we're going to have a national, if we're going to have a national conversation um, about sexual assault um, and harassment, then you're naturally going to privilege the stories of those that you see as pure and then capable of being victimized. And Oh, and to piggyback off of what was just said, too, is, um, you know, black women and, you know, a lot of the women who have come forward or have not come forward, but when sexual harassment happens, it's most likely happens to people who have less power in society or in that organization. And these people who hold the power feel like, for example, that these women and um, women and, you know, because women of color have been seen as um, almost invisible in society, um, they're, they're almost like um, they're not taking it seriously. So let me give you an example. So uh, I don't know if this name rings a bell to any of you, but Eldridge Cleaver uh, was a, a black man who uh, was very much involved with the Black Panther. And he wrote this book called Soul on Earth. On, on ice, I'm sorry. And in his introduction, uh, he probably wrote that he described a segment in there where he uh, would just, as a sport, rape black women. And he raped, he chose black women to perfect his techniques so that he can move on to white women. And the reason why he explains that he chose black women, even though he's a black male himself, was because he knew that if he, you know, uh, raped or sexually harassed black girls, police would not take them seriously. Black girls would know that society and the police would not take them seriously and would not report it. Um, and no police officer would try to search, you know, or, or protect these girls because black girls are seen as these troublemakers or are seen not as important to society. And so they would instantly think, well, these girls deserved it, or we know what girls of color are really like, less important, do not hold power. Knowing that, and he also said, like, he knows that there's, well, it just goes to show that there's just a real lack of protection for our girls of color. They're very vulnerable, and they feel like they don't have a voice, and so people just feel like they can almost do anything they want. They're marginalized. They will not speak up. You know, um, 
especially in the Asian community, women were taught to be silent. We don't want to cause any kind of trouble or girls of color. Well, you already have that kind of reputation. So who's really going to believe you? And that's a problem because what we really need to do is have more of these stories come forward so the, our women and girls of color feel trusted and they feel like their voices are important and, you know, that this does not continue in our society, that you know, we want our girls, women of color, to feel protected, to not feel as victims or, to, or for men or anyone to think that they can victimize our, you know, our women or girls. Yeah, I, I read a more here. I think maybe we, they need to feel more, more significant in a general society. I yes. think they feel insignificant. I think that we need to find a way to build their self-esteem and this, uh, their mm-hmm. worth, their self-worth, because I'm, I think that's how they feel. They feel less important, less significant mm-hmm. in society. Yeah. Right. And, and add to these important points, this is Dr. Murdy. Um, also, I think particularly in a, in a contemporary lens right now, um, Asian American women and um, South Asian women, and I'm speaking as a South Asian woman, is often seen as sexually oppressed, liberated in to a white woman who's often celebrated as uh, being liberated, and therefore somehow I think in the American imagination um, being above based on sexual harassment and assault. And so now suddenly it becomes news um, that these, these powerful white women are... Uh, are victims of sexual harassment and assault when um, you know this has been happening to to all women. No one is immune, um, right. and but it's suddenly it's suddenly news now. Well, you know what? You made a, you, all of you made excellent points. Here's my question: It's making news now. Is it is it so much because it's happening more to white women, or is it that? People finally um, became sick and tired of it, and and they felt the need to just expose it. Because my my I guess my concern is, why now? Why all of a sudden, all these narratives coming out, and, and all of these issues, and people called out for their behavior? And we've known this has been going on historically, like for years, forever. So why are we seeing this now, especially with the white women? I think they feel, Loretta Moore, I think white women feel more empowered because of a feminist, feminism, the feminist movement. I think they've come to a point where they feel they can address issues of sexual harassment or assault more because they feel more empowered. That's the progress I think the feminist movement has made. That's true. That's the point, I think. Uh, this is Yvonne um, Taylor again. I think, too, that we've been having a conversation, I think just hit a, a tipping point nationally um, that happened with Bill Cosby. Um, when, you know, that received a lot of attention. Um, and those were a, a lot of white women as well. Um, and then it moved on uh, to uh, um, Weinstein. And um, those are really prominent stories. So we kind of, I think, hit this tipping point um, with these prominent stories of celebrities um, that got a lot of media attention, 
and then when the Me Too campaign happened, it was it was, um, and especially after uh, Donald Trump, um, even if we that didn't affect the election results, it was part of that conversation. Um, right. And another celebrity, um, and a lot more white women as well coming forward. Um, and I think we've had what three years of that. Um, and so with that being part of the national conversation, um, and then along with social media and the Me Too campaign, um, I think the the dam broke. Yeah, right, excellent point. And you know what I want to bring up also? Do you, I don't know if any of you recall when the big issue was about Bill Cosby. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was a former model named Eamon or someone, I cannot remember her name, it may not have been her, a woman of color who came forward and said she had also been like, assaulted by Bill Cosby and she was drugged. And out of the bulk of the women who came forward, um, she was one of the most prominent women, women of color to speak. And her story was downplayed. At the time she came forward and started talking about what had happened to her, I think it was a former manager, someone who came forward and said she's lying, and it was that was it. There was nothing else heard about it. So the point I'm making is that it was a woman of color who also stepped up and said, "I too have been a victim of this guy," and her whole story was downplayed. Does anybody recall that? Because I found that interesting when doing research for the show, that it's just um, how her story was downplayed. But what I wanted to do is get back to talking about Asian women. Um, with, through the Women of Color Net, I pulled up some data, statistics, and they noted that 31.9% of, of Pacific Islander women experience other, some form of sexual violence. Um, they found that 6.8% of Asian women uh, um, reported rape in their lifetime. Then there was the issue in 2012 where there was gang rape, rape of a young woman who was a student on a bus in New Delhi, India, and that brought national attention, you know, across that country. So then in a study conducted, or let's say a, a survey by Action Aid in 2016, they found out that 44% of women surveyed in India have been groped in public. So it appears that these issues, like we've all noticed, have been going on for a time, but it seems like women in other countries are victimized at higher rates or more often than women here in the United States, as far as we know, when the issues are reported. What are your thoughts on that? I, I, Anyone have any thoughts? I mean, yeah. oh, there's a, well, there's also more, I mean, poverty in these other nations as well. I mean, we have to look at it in terms of context and, and take this intersectional lens, right, which is what um, we all want to see more of happen, that this, you know, this is a function of, of race, of class, of sexuality, and um, in, in a larger part, I mean, patriarchy and power and uh you know often when um when men i i and i'd like my, my colleagues here to weigh in on this but my my feeling is that when men feel emasculated in some way as men of color often do on a global scale um that they can take this out on 
on women and women of color in their communities. And I think that's part of what uh, we see happening um, in other countries. I mean, my, my personal reaction, response to that is always concern of how, um, how those outside of the country and those outside of the community are interpreting this because unfortunately it serves to like further pathologize that uh, our community. And so the reaction is to say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's their culture. That's their, um, uh, that's, you know, their, their backwards or negative or uncivilized culture or society when it is, there's really larger forces at work and um, we're all to blame for it. it it's not just, mm-hmm. you know, isolated to a culture or community that we can just pin it on. So those would be my initial thoughts. Excellent point. Anyone else want to add to that? Other comments? Okay, um, I just, I, this, is, this is Yvonne again. I, I would just agree with that point, and I think that um, even without looking outside of this country, you can see that, that, that those um, those intersectional identities and the um, the oppression that you experience with them compounded um, you see the numbers rise when people are when you know pe- people have um, fewer resources um, and when they're more marginalized um, for example within um, the LBGTQ community um, you see a lot of um, of unreported issues and when they're reported a lot that go on to murder <laughs> um, because um, when people are more marginalized, um, they experience more of these issues. One point. So I think it's interesting to note that when, and women in other countries, it's interesting to also note that we look around, and I want to data, give me one second. When the research has been conducted, and mainly in the Arab world, for example, um, it's an issue of shame and stigma that can be argued to be universal, yeah, especially if they come forward and report it. Um, it's also issues, and this is more or less when we start talking about violence, where some families even kill their daughters if they were no longer virgins, and this is all based on the reports. Um, and when we look at the Middle East and North Africa, um, there's an issue where in Egypt, 99% of the women experience sexual harassment to some degree. When we look at the West and Sub-Saharan African areas, the data noted that, let's see, the South African Organization of Rape Crisis, they noted there were more than 53,000 rapes that were reported to the South African police services between 2014 and 2015. And if you break that down, that comes to nearly like 150 rapes per day. Mm-hmm. What's sad about that is because we don't know the numbers of rapes that were not reported. So that is a big issue when we start looking at other mm-hmm. countries. Um, they noted in, in Zimbabwe, for example, um, girls, they are young, especially vulnerable to sexual assault. They have the child marriages due to severe poverty. And as noted, a lot of these young women cannot fight for themselves. So, and if a young woman decides to go up, you know, we're talking about Zimbabwe still, and she reports sexual abuse, you know, if she's living with her relatives, then she risks being kicked out of the home. 
you know, if the abuse is the breadwinner and is jailed, then the family has no financial support. And that means, you know, their mode of survival is, is out of the window. So when that's the issue and that's the case, the child is often beaten and treated very badly. And if she becomes pregnant, she's often forced to have an abortion, often terrible circumstances. So there are issues where women in other countries are really going through difficult times where they do have nonprofits they are trying to offer aid and assistance. Looking at the numbers, I mean, you all remember when the Boko Haram group met those girls. They had to hashtag out, bring back our girls. And, you know, although some of them returned home, some were pregnant, some did not. But it seems there that it's more acceptable for the young girls and women in these countries to be treated in a negative manner and that they're not supposed to speak up because, number one, it's the issue of disgracing the family name. And once again, as I noted, of losing the financial support for the families. So what can actually be done? I mean, let's on a realistic level. What can actually be done to help protect these young girls in Western countries? Any? Hi, this is Dr. Montecavo. I want to thank you all for your amazing contributions thus far. And I think the question of what do we do now is a really wonderful question. And I think... We look historically of how women have been treated. Women, all we have been disservice. And women of color, you're right, have not been treated and not been given a voice. And I've been doing some research before this call, and I started looking up stories about women of color and the Me Too movement. And most people have not heard them. They're not in Main Street media. We're not having a conversation. But what, what and where does a young woman of color have a voice in all of this. Where would she go? Who would she talk to? Yes, we have social media, but after a few thousand tweets, then what? You know, and the question really is, is when are women respected? When are women of color, when is their voice heard? Who do they go to? And if for years they've been going to their doctor, or to their mother, or their family members, and no one believes them, then their story is constantly muted. And we have to start opening up our ears to hear these stories. And I think the first level of engagement has to come when you're going to your doctor, your primary care doctor, your pediatrician, when you're really little, your body autonomy, where you have pride in your body has to exist. And right now, young people only see that in the media and really on television and music videos. They don't see it anywhere else where women get to have ownership of their body, ownership of their sexual pleasure. We're not ever having that conversation. We belong to everyone else. Mm. Yeah, and and to piggyback off of what you just said, um, you know, with everything that's been coming um, forward in Hollywood and Weinstein, when it was found out that he was part of the whole uh, sexual harassment, and then from there, each day or, you know, uh, each almost every hour, then these names came forward, Winola Judge, you know, what is Paltrow? And it became these names that everybody knew. You know, we saw them in movies. We knew who they are. You know, we, we knew a little bit about their lives. And when we started hearing those stories, it made a lot of women think about, I know, you know, I've seen that person. I know who that person is because of the movies or the TV shows they've done. And their stories started to matter. And 
what's interesting is, you know, when you think about Anita Hill, right, she testified in 1991. And when women heard about what happened to her, women supported her. They said definitely a lot of women said, I believe what Anita's story about, you know, being sexually harassed. Um, and they believed because they themselves, even though they had not come forward, I believe, you know, they too had some form of sexual harassment happen to them. Um, and, of course, all women who heard it said, you know, to themselves or to each other, like, no one wants to face what she has endured, right? And what's amazing is now with this whole Me Too campaign, um, it's just it's made more women now come forward and be willing to tell their stories, right? And with the whole thing of social media or Facebook, then all these women felt safe enough to then come forward with their stories. And now we have a society where we have more women no longer feel like they need to be invisible because I think in some way, too, that these men who are harassers or women who have been harassed believe that, you know, if I come forward, I could lose my job. And, you know, when you hear some of the men who, who have admitted, yes, I have sexually harassed it, harassed, other men who come forward and said, you know, well, she probably moved up. You know, she, not that even though I feel bad that this woman um, went through sexual harassment, but look at where she is. She climbed the ladder, you know. That is true. So was her life really that bad? Look at how successful she became. And that's not the way that this story should be handled. You know, what she went through, it's something that we as a society have to take seriously. And these stories of shame should not be something of embarrassment, but we should let these girls and women know that their stories and what they went through is important and we need to support them. Because this is not acceptable, that women feel unsafe in an environment where they're trying to be successful, you know, in the workplace or in schools. So that, for sure, has got to change in our society. And I think we are making movements to let that happen. So, I think so. I can, I can tell you all, but you know we have a call for submission. Well, the anthology outpaces our stories. And I've received so many poems, essays, and short stories where girls and women of color are telling their stories. They're telling about how they were assaulted or molested or um, raped. Um, and there's stories, and, and I was so interested and happy to see them coming forward because, as one young lady wrote that, she felt as if there was no need to talk about it because society didn't want to hear that a young black girl had been assaulted, raped, or molested. It's that we matter enough. And I think it's a good platform for their voices to be heard and to let everybody know what has been going on. I think what happens is that society is so used to saying to color, okay, yeah, I heard you, whatever. Go sit down. And I, and I do believe that is how they're being viewed. For example, if you look at some of the news outlets, for example, MSNBC, and I can't talk about the because I haven't watched it. I'm expecting to show because they know of the discussion and everything that's going on. I'm expecting to see a show or episode where they're going to talk about women of color and their experiences. And for the most part, I'm not, I'm interested in hearing everybody's story, but 
I think it's to, to, uh, to downplay it when you start seeing them being more open to hearing of a movie star's issues as opposed to Jane Doe, who may be a secretary or a nurse. And I think what we need to focus on is that when we're, if we're going to have this open discussion about girls and women of color and these experiences, I think the media needs to understand and recognize that what about the average individual in society, not a movie star, not a singer, not an actor. We, it's important for these other women to be heard. Number two, I also think that the voices of girls and women of color are not really being heard, and including the national narrative, because I know, I can see, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know of any woman of color that has her own talk on television that is of substance, and I'm not talking about the Wendy Williams all, but... Is there somebody with a real-life platform that would be mm-hmm. sincere, not a gossip monkey magazine or a show to, to talk about people in a negative light? But if we're not seeing, and, and I just did this, I think, yesterday. I flicked through the channel. I'm not a TV but just in flick through, I could not find one show that's on in this area. There is a woman of color at, running her own show as the main host and who's even willing to address these issues and have these discussions with women. Is it just me, or is it... Is it this is really real. What are your thoughts? This is, this is Dr. Costello. I myself have not seen a show in which um, those things are addressed and the conversation is real. And I think part of it goes back to us not being women of color, being able to share our experiences. And I think the rationale for that is... As women of color, what do we do with those experiences if we disclose them? How do we then manage those things? What are, are there repercussions for talking about those things? Um, will I be empowered? Who will stand with me when I talk about those things? Um, you know, will I lose the little privilege that I have? Um, Who is going to hear my voice? Will I have power? Is anyone going to hear my story? So I think that's part of the issue in which we don't see these things being addressed in a sense of let's empower our sisters, let's talk about this, rather than it being a gossip. Exactly. Excellent point. I agree 100%. Oh, go ahead. Was somebody else going to comment? Um, well, this is Yvonne Taylor again, and uh, I, I kind of want to re- revisit Anita Hill um, because I, I for I was 20 years old when that happened, um, and then when that became part of the national conversation, and I remember my family, both men and women, thinking that she should not have spoken up. Um, and so the, the what the messages that I received um, and that other young black women received was that. Um, that she shouldn't have spoken up whether it was true or not because she should not have aired the dirty laundry of the black community um, in front of white people. And so she was not um, lauded for what she did within people that I knew within the black community. Um, And that was very um, silencing for somebody like me who had experienced um, abuse. Um, You know, it, it told me, don't speak up. And so there's these compounded uh, mechanisms in place 
for someone like, um, uh, you know, for, for a black woman um, who's experienced these things, um, not to speak up, not only because of how society and as a whole views um, women and our experiences, but as being um, black women, um, the, the, what we're supposed to do in order to make sure that we're lifting up black men um, and also not um, um, giving white people information that we think would pathologize our community further. That's true. That is very true. Because I remember, as Anita Hill, I do remember the discussion, and I do remember how there were some people, oh, why would she do that? She just a black person. And it wasn't, whereas, like, you know, that was one of our, our talking points. Do you believe that those who looked, you know, thought that she should not have come forward, do you think that they thought that way other than, let's say, because she's down the black man or having the dirty laundry, but you think there was doubt there because of the fact that she was a black woman who was telling this story? You know, it was confirmed. I was think it, that, oh, I think. I think there are two things involved. I think that for the dominant society, for white people, they may have viewed her as, you know, as they view other black women who are um, unrapeable or unassaultable and, you know, too masculine, all of those things, um, and not worthy of any kind of protection. So that story may have been um, disbelieved despite facts. Um, But I think that within the black community, I I didn't think um, that anybody actually doubted her story. I think it was there was more about um, her taking down a black man and our need to have a black man on the Supreme Court um, was more important than whatever may have happened to her. Excellent. And also, I heard a lot of people uh, when Anita Hill came forward who also said it was women, too, not just men. But, you know, who is she to be speaking up? She has a very good high position, so she should just mm. be thankful that she's in that position, then stir the pot. I heard that, too. You know? That's right. And, and, and the thing is, too, for so long, um, up until now, you know, 2017, people, men, are finding out that you, you know, you compliment a woman too much, you do something inappropriate, you, you know, do something that's considered sexual harassment, well, you know, you're going to get in trouble. And thankfully, I, I, I feel like these companies are now, no longer are they simply, oh, you know, as an HR department or as a company, we're going to just, you say, you know, somebody of high position has sexually harassed you, well, let's, like, keep it between us. Let's give you a private settlement, and you just keep quiet. Because we are trying to protect our company, or we're trying to protect our person who holds a high position. But now with the whole wine scene thing, society has said, you know, we don't care who you are. You may make great movies or with um, NBC Matt Lauer, you know, when he came forward. We don't care who you are. You, you are. you sexually harass, you will get punished. You will lose your job. This will no longer be private deals to protect you or our company, but you will face the consequences now. And I think there should continue to be a zero-tolerance policy um, enforced in companies because this cannot continue. It is not okay, someone of high power, to think that it's okay to over-compliment a woman. If a woman feels uncomfortable, then that needs to be taken 
that needs to be taken more seriously. I don't know if it's like anonymous phone calls or emails or whatever, but anytime that woman feels uncomfortable, there needs to be a place where she can report it. Exactly. I remember there was a time when I worked at an organization in corporate America, and I worked in the employee relations department, and my, I was basically investigator. And my job was, you know, just go in. And I remember they labeled me, thought I was like a bull. My job was to go in, the facts and the details. And there were issues where there was sexual harassment, the point that it was pathetic and unbelievable that someone was actually living this every day in the work. And I remember at one point in time when we had a team meeting and I brought it to the table of how the black within the organization were afraid to come forward and talk about their sexual harassment as well as the racism because they feared losing their jobs. And when I started working, I was the first black woman in the Baltimore area, so I was more than to take on this role. And when I would go to the different locations, they, you know, at first they were a little leery of me. They thought I was just a corporate, you know, representative. As one girl called me, you're just there, and you're still on their side. But in hearing their stories and the experiences what these women went through, I went back to my team, you know, we had a meeting, we there are issues here we need to address. These women are afraid to come forward because, and which is true, many of the women who did, uh, for some ungodly reason, they were they found some reason to terminate them. When I took, you know, when I made issue of it, I was basically in so many words to shut up and let it that it was nothing to talk about. It happened in the past. It's over with. But it was still the issue there that women had gone through the experiences. The people that, the perpetrators were still working there, and it moved up to high levels within the organization. And when one young lady decided she was finally going to speak on it, you know, I investigated the case, found out that the story was legit, the individual was confronted, and I was told that I better not touch him. Don't touch him. He's a VP up on the seventh floor, and you better not even issue um, warning or anything. And when I interviewed him, this gentleman was so condescending, cocky, and arrogant, and his words to me, so what in the hell do you you're going to do? Nothing's going to happen. So when I finally had all the evidence together, rendered what my recommendation was immediate termination, I was told no. I terminated him. And I was told that I better bring him, and I did not do that. Was so the point that I make here is that this is like almost let's say about about maybe seven, eight years ago, maybe a little bit longer. The point I'm making is that if these women were afraid to come forward because there wasn't, I don't believe it's the fact that their stories were not. It was more or less who cared. So we're now looking at a corporate environment where a white male participated in this behavior. He was terminated. He was brought back to the company afterwards. Um, I left. I resigned. They brought him back to the company. And to this day, I don't know if there was even a arrest. He was transferred to a different unit in a different city. 
And within a month later, the young woman who reported this to me was terminated. So that sent a message loud and clear to the other women working there. Don't work. Just deal with it. Do your job. So I, I guess that is an issue. What are your thoughts? You know, this is Dr. Costello. Thanks for sharing that story. It just um, shows that how power and privilege continues to um, be shown across the board. Um, it's a systemic issue. It's a, a societal issue. With and you hit it. Um, you hit the nail on the head when you said the woman came forward, shared her story, and she nothing was done. There was no repercussion for his behavior. And what that then did was tell all the other women um, that don't come forward because nothing is going to be done. So continue to stay silent um, because these individuals will be protected um, through the company, and you don't have a voice to share your story. So why would I then want to come forward and share my story? So then the response to that, I would say, is these women finding a confidant um, in the job and seeing who who will hear my voice. Who can I share the story with? Who will support me through this process that's there? Because mm-hmm. I yeah, remember to I told piggyback off of that. Oh God! Mm-hmm. No, no, go ahead. To piggyback Dr. off of that, a big issue is, um, you know, we. Um, I think all of us can agree on this. We're all women of color who have worked very hard to get to where we are now, and um, through our efforts of working hard. We, you know, have had to really uh, try to have control over our lives. And when we face sexual harassment, it really does make us feel very helpless. We no longer feel like we have control. And when we feel that way, it can be very upsetting, right? And then when we start feeling upsetting, what happens naturally that some of us will start blaming ourselves. We start feeling like a victim. I should have I should have spoken up. Um, And then what does not help is, you know, that men feel like they can have the sexual jokes. They feel like it's okay to, you know, whistle at a woman because he's only, you know, emphasizing that she's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. And when it's found out that a woman does come forward um, and is telling her story, what you hear is, Voices saying, well, what does, what does she expect? Look at the way she dresses. Or she shouldn't have drank so much. So then women feel shamed. And that's the big thing is this Me, me Too um, has brought forward that, you know, women no longer have to be ashamed. They were victims. And what has happened to them, sexual harassment, is no longer going to be tolerated. So they do not have to say, yeah, maybe I was at fault for what happened to me. No, what what happened, you did not deserve, and it should not be happening. Um, this is a lot of again. Um, I, I feel like a point that we're all making or coming back to here is the need for an audience and and a safe audience. But there's and there's a lack of that audience for women and girls of color, whether it be in the United States or whether it be outside of the United States. And I think that's linked to power and privilege as well, whether you have access to that audience is very much a a function of power and privilege. Whether that audience is your doctor, right? Well, a lot of women don't have adequate 
daycare, so they don't have access mm-hmm. to that audience. Um, and and so you need an audience, and you need a safe audience and a safe space. Mm-hmm. And my um, my qualms, my my problem with the Me Too campaign on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I think it's a bad thing, but for me as a woman of color, I thought, is that a safe space? Is that a safe audience? I didn't feel like it completely was on social media in general. Um, and that's a question I'm still left with, and, and I'm, I'm interested in hearing what the rest of you think about that as well, because I really felt like that was a space, social media and particularly Me Too campaign, that was a space for white women. Um, That's true. Share their stories. I felt. Well, you know what, um, what I felt. Um, go ahead. Um, oh, this, yeah, this is Yvonne again, and I want to jump in because that's part of the reason that um, I think you invited me to talk. Um, was that I did share something as a black woman on um, Facebook, but it took me a while <laughs> to do it because of everything that um, Dr. Murdy just said. Um, when I first shared something, and I, I'm a writer, and I've expressed a lot of things um, in personal essays as well as on social media, um, but when I first decided to participate in the Me Too, um, um, Me Too movement um, and share stories, I shared kind of the most innocuous stories I could about um, harassment I had received from strangers. Um, then I moved on to write um, the op-ed that I did about how um, Me Too could be used for men who've experienced um, sexual abuse as children. Um, I still felt like I wasn't really participating in what um, a lot of the white women that I had seen participating in had done um, because I hadn't really talked about the molestation that I had experienced, in particular molestation that I had experienced um, within, you know, family. Um, so this, because there, there was that reflection on the black community, you know, um, the kinds of things that um, we're not supposed to talk about. Um, and it didn't feel safe to do it. But I also felt, you know, I'm 48 years old. I'm a writer. I, I'm a teacher. Um, expression is super important. And I want to be a model for um, all of those um, young women who um, know me. Um, to be somebody who stood up and actually talked about this. And so not only did I share that um, on social media, on Facebook, but I also shared the correspondence that um, had happened between me and um, the cousin who had molested me um, several years ago when I confronted him and how um, the experience of, of me telling my father and how my father kind of ignored my story for years and what that felt like. I shared all of that on Facebook. Um, and I, I felt like um, because we don't have these, these stories out there um, from people that we actually know, um, that it was, it was important for me to do it. It was important for me to model that and, um, and to model the fact that the shame that I had carried for so long wasn't mine to carry. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, then. you know, why is it so important? Well, uh, what is the point? And you just made an excellent point there. But why is it so important for stories of girls and women of color to be told? Why does the world of society need to know and hear? Know what's happened. It's a sexual assault, molestation, rape, harassment. You know, and, and, if, and then the second part of that question is, 
you know, what can girls and women of color do to press upon society, you know, the importance of these narratives, um, their stories, their experiences, and the traumas that they experience as a result of all of this. How do you say to the society where you have a group of women based on the color of their skin, ethnicity, race, whatever you want to call it, women of color, how do you say to this society, listen, I count, I have a voice, I've gone through trauma, I need you to understand that. Why, why, number one, do they even want society to know about this? And number two, how do you get them to understand that they must be allowed to talk about these things and get it out? Um, well, this is Yvonne, and um, I would like to address that first point of why it's important. Um, I think that the point ultimately is to challenge, disrupt, and dismantle a really dysfunctional culture that ignores and marginalizes all of our voices. Um, and that it, the point is to create – we're trying to create a freer and more just society for every human being in it. And if we recognize the humanity of – our most vulnerable, and that currently means the people we shame into silence, um, if, we, if we recognize their humanity, then everyone in society benefits, um, and we will have furthered the safety and freedom of all of us. Excellent, excellent point. Mm-hmm. Anybody else yeah. add in? Also, too, oh, I, can... I love that um, even though the Me Too campaign is not perfect, and I will totally agree with that, yet I think it sparked the whole conversation of sexual harassment happens. And when anyone has been harassed or assaulted, as I said before, they feel very helpless. They feel like there is nowhere, nowhere that they can turn. They may go to the school authority. They may go to the HR. But, you know, their HR department is, can be useless. They're more into just protecting the company um, because of financial reasons or because of the reputation. But now, and then it leads to women, you know, self-blaming and feeling like no hope. And by having these stories of women talking about how they have been treated, it gives them a sense of hope that they can change their circumstances, that they no longer have to feel like nobody will listen or that there's nothing that they can do. But now they can find ways to go turn to for help. They can protect themselves, protect themselves, and they can know that their voices are important and that they can change their circumstances and that they can ultimately have hope. One point. You know, let's do this. Let's, one, let's look at film novels and, and involving rape, sexual assault, and abuse of, you know, girls and women of color. And I would like to you know, the color purple by Toni Morrison and the movie Precious. Well, for those of you, everyone, I'm quite just purple. In the film, um, Seely, and this is by Alice, Seely, the, the main character, was sexually abused by her step resulting in two children. And then after that, she ended up with Mr. Who, for lack of a word, was just whatever. Um, but the scenes with, there was a scene in the movie where he went to bed and he was having sex with her, and she was laying there like, "What is happening?" And it didn't matter to him where her mind was or what she thought. Then you have in the bluest eye with Toni Morrison, um, it focused on pedof- pedophiles and child molestation. Then in the movie Precious, you know that was based on that novel Push by Sapphire, and it also 
also provided another example where there was incest as well as the sexual abuse of a young black girl whose father continually raped her, her biological father, since she was a child and it resulted in two pregnancies. So here's the question. When stories of girls and women of color depicted in film and novels, on stage and plays, and they involve the sexual assault, molestation, um, et cetera, do they serve as some form of, uh, let's say, help for the girls and women of color to tell their stories? I mean, does it say to them, you don't have to suffer in silence? They can realize by reading in the book, seeing it on the stage, or watching in a film that they don't have to suffer in silence. Do you think any of those help? Um, as a writer who often, every book I've ever written has a sexual assault of women and girls. So I think it does help to, for other women, to, other women and girls to see that this happens to people. So that they're they're not isolated in their situations if they're involved and if that happens to them they're not isolated. I think it's good for them to see this in books and plays and in any other way that they can, so they know that they're not the only ones that that this happens to. They don't have to be silenced and feel silenced because of it. No, that's an excellent point. Now let me ask you this: when you wrote, when you included that, like they were sexually assaulted in your books, what made you put that in there? Is it that because you wanted? I, I wanted right. it in there because I, I I knew that these things happened, and I think that you know that was a way of of uh, bringing it to a broader audience or people who might have this happen and not know uh, how to find a way to deal with it, and just so that they're not they're not isolated and not you know they don't feel like this is just happening to them. It happens. And you, excellent point. And you know what else I wanted to bring up too, and then we'll move forward, is that. I've noticed, and somebody, you know, jump on me if I'm wrong here, and this is just a question. When we sent out the call for submissions um, for the anthology of Voices Out Stories, I sent them to the bulk of the black Baptist churches in Jersey City. I sent them to women's organizations, sent them to all of the high schools um, in the city, never received a response, but... I'm wondering, is it, and and I'm not saying I expect these girls to write about any sexual assault or anything, but I'm wondering, is is it that our girls don't really tell their stories because maybe the people or the teachers who are leading them or the principals or the church leaders are basically not interested or not encouraging them to come forward, or is it the issue with the writing? Um, if, go ahead. Sorry, this is Dr. Costello. I want you to finish your question before I um, respond to it. No, no, go ahead. I'm finished. Go, go. Uh, okay. I um, haven't worked with individuals who've been survivors of sexual assault. I think asking for those stories in those forums um, can be a little traumatic, um, if they aren't dealt with properly. And I believe part of the reason for that is these individuals, it's a hidden story. It's something you don't talk about. It's a right. part, I feel shame. I feel guilty. I feel, I have all these feelings that I don't know what to do with this experience. And now to put it on paper makes it become real. 
and it makes me have to deal with it, and I haven't dealt with it yet. So now if I put it on paper and someone reads it, what am I going to do with that? How are they going to view me once they've read those stories? So it may be hard. It might have been hard to get stories from these different venues um, because the individuals who may have experienced these things um, were told to, you don't talk about those things. Um, you know, they haven't dealt with them yet. That They don't know what to do with them if they bring up those experiences. Um, and so I think that's part of the issue that's there. But if we do have an open forum and more individuals talk about these hidden stories, the older generation come on and say, hey, you know, I have had these experiences. This is how I have dealt with it. It's okay to come forth. Maybe individuals will start coming forward and saying, these are my experiences. What do I now do with this? Excellent point. That's true. Very good point. Anybody else want to add to that? Um, this is I, uh, go, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Cavill. I I really think that if you live in a system that completely devalues you and normalizes right. the fact that you are sexually available mm-hmm. at all times then your story has no value. What that's happening to you is not trauma, even though it truly is trauma. But your story is so powerful, but it has been normalized and been part of a narrative that has been accepted. And I think part Mm -hmm. of the conversation is when we're writing as women, people say, oh, well, that's feminism. No, that's white feminism. There's a really big difference. And I think we have to really have that conversation because – you know, white feminism really is looking at policies and procedures and equality. When we're looking at women of color and them having a voice, having exactly. a true voice, it's really having, you know, dealing with really complicated integration and total transformation of the narrative we have in our American culture. And it's, it's putting people at equal footing and not asking them to step behind. So I don't think they're ever going to share their story because their story is not, it's not real. It's not real. And I, I value my colleagues on this call saying that, they, you know, this has happened to them because it has and it's, it's real. But you shared a great thing about the media. When have we seen on regular television, you know, our general channels that this experience has happened to women? You know, the That's only right. woman I could think of when we were talking about women in media was Oprah. She's exactly. the only woman of color who has mm-hmm. really expressed her true story. And, and many women, that, her life story is, is nowhere relatable for the rest of us. That's you know, right. She's, she's that's, unattainable. That's right. I, I think it's important that, and this is one of the reasons why um, Dr. Jung and I decided to start the Visibility Talk Radio Series, so rather, because our voices need to be heard. There are so many issues that affect girls and women of color. And we're silent across the board, even, I mean, to some degree in academia, in the job market, whether it's in housing, um, personal issues where it's just this, okay, whatever. But what disturbs me the most is even on, like, you know, I hate to keep bringing up the media, but if I think if we had a forum where a woman of color had a talk show, not only a panel group, had a talk show, and she had guests come on and they talk about these issues and let this, the world know on national television, this stuff is happening. And, you know, one young lady, um, I shared this one, one earlier this week, um, who had been abused 
um, you know, just she went through some really, really difficult stuff. And I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist. But I will listen to you. I will hear you. I will extend my hand to you in friendship and say, talk to me if you need someone to talk to. And I will help get you in touch with who you need help you. But this one young lady said this to me. And this was, I think, it wasn't Christmas night, the day after Christmas. And she said to me, no, Dr. C., I'd rather talk to you about it because I feel comfortable with you. You're listening and you're caring and you're understanding. And even though you haven't experienced what I did, what makes the difference between you and me going where you, you know, you want to recommend that I go to is that when I'm talking to you, I can see that you're genuinely concerned and compassion and you're interested in helping me, you know, heal and move forward. So, then we, you know, we went on in the conversation, and she, we started talking about how the voices of girls and women of color are often silenced. We're invisible. You're not seen as being worthy. And then the dialogue continued, the conversation continued to the point that she finally said to me after three and a half hours of talking, she said, you know what, Dr. C., I just got it. I'm going to write about how I feel about what I went through. And then I'm going to read it to myself, and I'm going to take it out, and I'm going to read it again until I, I, you know, I find peace with it. And maybe that's a good thing for her. Maybe it's good. But she, her point was she didn't want to go and go to a center and talk to them. She just wanted one person. And, and this is what I found out, and you guys tell me if I, if, what you think of this. Is it better sometimes? For women to be able to have maybe that one or one or maybe two people as a confidant that they can go to and talk to about these issues, and is it through those dialogues that you continue to have that healing can actually take place for them? Um, what do yeah. you I'm really, I'm really glad you brought that up, uh, Dr. Culbert. This is Lada Mercy again, and, and I, I don't mean to harp on this. But this is why I think I sort of object to the Me Too campaign, not so much the campaign itself, but it being on social media. Because I think there's a danger when it's just limited to social media, which is such a flighty (laughs) medium, and maybe I'm showing my age in saying that, than having a sustained dialogue because it's that – Sustained dialogue, and I think, you know, we haven't really talked about her yet, but I think that's what um, Tarana Burke really wanted out of the Me Too. She didn't want it to be a viral social media thing. She wanted this to lead to sustained dialogue that lead to to healing and uh, and um, change, social change, right. the kind of change that, that Dr. Montecalvo was talking about. I don't know if we can get that on social media, you know, and I'm a huge social media user, but I just think there are some things that aren't going to happen if limited to that forum. Um, And so, you know, that may also point to why young women and young girls uh, didn't respond perhaps to these calls for contributions because it starts by having a dialogue with yourself. I agree. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think of where these young women and girls of color could have that safe space even for that dialogue with themselves. So if they're at home 
do they have, I mean, <laughs> pardon the expression, but, you know, a room of their own space, of their own privacy uh, time mm-hmm. to work through this by themselves? Or is someone going to be looking over their shoulder? You know, what are you writing? <laughs> what are you doing I mean, there? You know, right. Um, You're right. That and, is, then, that is. and then, okay, then they submit it. Can they do, submit something like that without their teachers knowing, without their people in their family, other adults, their church knowing, and then let's say it gets published. Then how do you, I mean, it, you know, again, right. are you having the kind of dialogue you want now because something like that is published? I think it's a real risk for a young girl of color, you know, to write about that. Hopefully, you know, when, when she's, you know, sadly, I think, until, you know, maybe she's our age, she won't be able to to talk about it and write about it like we have, hopefully sooner. Mm-hmm. But um, but that's what the points you brought up made, made me think of in terms of having that dialogue that's so necessary and needed. But, um, but I, I think it's a function of age as well, being able to heal and right. have and you know what's sad is because this young lady never disclosed to anyone what had happened to her. And she continued to blame herself. And my point was, and I, you know, I repeat, I, like I say, I explained to her, I'm not a therapist. I do, for some reason, my passion, my calling is to focus in on girls and women of color and the issue, you know, their psychological, emotional, physical, and social well being. And I think for me, that has come from the point, Dr. John can confirm this for you, of teaching. Of a, um, I taught college for over 17 years. And as in addition to being a professor, to teaching, you know, quantitative analysis, to diversity in the workplace, to a social science course, I not only was I the professor, but I became mentor. I became confidant. Um, mm-hmm. I became friend. I, when I was teaching at a community college in Baltimore, and I was teaching a, um, I forgot the name of the course anyway, but I had to go through painstaking efforts just to bring my, to get my young women, women of color, in the course to focus in on the course, the constant learning, and, and having individual conversations with them. These young women were beginning to confide in me about what their lives were like outside of my classroom. Now, these young women experienced lives that I could never have imagined living through. And these girls were 18, 19, 22, 23. They're very young. And, you know, I, I dealt with one young lady who was going through some really harsh um, female issues and had a doctor talk to her and treat her. When she went to the doctor to report what had happened, the doctor shamed her, you know, damned her to hell. So when she went back to the doctor again, I went with her. And I snatched the doctor up, and I made it very, very clear to him that he was out of place, that his bedside manner getting a message to these young black girls. If you've been assaulted, if you've been raped, if someone attacked you and sodomized you, and they come to you for help, and you're telling them that it happened because they're sluts and harlots and they're loose women, I said, my gosh, what is going through your mind? That wasn't his place to do that. It was his place to take care of the medical aspect of it and, if necessary, refer her over to a counseling center and a crisis center, something else. 
But I found myself over the years as a professor, I found myself as a consultant uh, working in various fields where when young women would come to you with these issues that they were going through or experiencing, you know, your heart automatically goes out. And with the, with the girls that I taught in the, in the college program, some of the, the circumstances that they were involved in, a lot were, they were out of their control. One young lady was forced to be in a situation with someone because she was, and she had to live with him, and he forced sexually every night. And she was miserable, and her mind was just, you know, out there because she would say to me, Doctor, by the time I leave your class and go to work and then come home, he's home. And by the time I can even, before I can sit down and open up my book, on top of me. And if I don't let it, he just forces me. I don't want it. I don't want him to. He just takes me. And I don't have a choice. There's nothing I can do. He overpowers me. So here's a young lady. I'm a professor. And she's telling me these stories of what's going on. And I have coming forward. Not believe the level. And it was sexual. It was a it was rape. It was sodomy. These girls felt that I go to even go to my doctor and report it. I'm going to be shamed or talk to. So what do we do, ladies? What do we do when we have young women who are basically so afraid of speaking up or they're trapped in situ? They believe that they're trapped in situations where there is no way out. Because if I move out of his apartment and I leave him, I'm homeless. I'm in a shelter. I don't want to live in a shelter. So what do we do? What type of resources, what type of support, what can we do to help these young women? Any ideas? Uh, well, well definitely in the workplace. Oh, go on. Um, I, yeah, this is a great question. This is, this is Lada Mertig, and, and I, I think we're all taking a few moments to, to – uh, to think about that that story, I mean that not story, but actual life experience. I, uh, um, but just to begin with, I mean, thank you for sharing that. In that it it it's a powerful story in that it really shows the need for more women of color in professional helping mm-hmm. professions. Uh, you know, like some of us on this call, uh, really all of us, more women of color, teachers, psychologists, therapists, counselors, ministers, um, as, as at least the first uh, resource for girls and women in those situations to to go to. But that that's my initial response. Okay, good. Anybody else? And then, you know, another issue, too, that we have to deal with, especially when it comes to black women and girls and sexual assault and rape, is that the stereotypes that they place upon them, and, you know, I'm going to reference here the Jezebel and the matriarch. And, you know, historically, you know, there were those type of stereotypes. And, and, and what's bad about them is that they made it difficult for women, girls and women of color, trying to disclose, you know, confront sexual assault. Um, and they reinforce those those rape myths. For example, when we talk about the Jezebel, 
Um, that stereotype promotes the idea that women of color are responsible for their assault. And stereotypes of that nature, what they do is they force their culture of silence. They demean and minimize the seriousness of what sexual assault, the sexual assaults that have taken place, et cetera, against girls and women of color. And, and, then, and, then, and then on top of that, um, when we start looking at black women, black and African-American women's sexuality, um, the term like the Isabel labels them as being promiscuous, exotic. And what that does, it perpetuates, you know, that notion that black women are willing participants in their own victimization, but those myths are damaging and they're, they're dangerous. So when we start looking at, and I think one of you mentioned this earlier, that with that stereotype labeling them as being unrapeable, as being sexually promiscuous, lustful, and immoral, then, and I'm citing a, a research here by Collins in 2000, where that Jezebel, you know, labeling black women, you know, it's a Jezebel, portraying them in this light, it makes them look really, um, well, if you've been raped, well, you deserved it. You brought it on yourself. So I'm bringing it up to ask you this question. I had a conversation with some men and women, and we were talking about stereotypes of women of color. And when I brought up the Jezebel, one of the women who was an older woman noticed, noted this, um, and I'm saying this in quotes, the Jezebel stereotype is some black women emulate, i.e., look at Beyonce, Mariah Carey, and other artists. Their stage performance is self-sex. And in turn, our young girls emulate the same behavior in their everyday dress and behavior. And then she said this, so if you, Dr. Culbert, are going to have a discussion you have to include this point. Talk about the Jezebel culture and how it affects our young girls. End of quote. Here's my question. Is this so-called, you know, what she considers Jezebel culture real 2017? Any thoughts? I mean, let me um, ask you this. Before you I, answer, I, I, this is, take, for example, look at some of other black actresses as singers. When they perform, very sexual in nature, according to her. Is that saying that, in addition to my voice, I have to be extremely sexy in order to get my records to sell? What is it saying? And is there uh, any truth to this Jezebel culture? Um, I would... I would like to, I mean, this is Yvonne Taylor again, and I would like to argue vehemently against that point of view. <laughs> um, I, I think just because, um, okay. <laughs> just because a stereotype exists doesn't mean that a woman should have to limit her personal expression in order to avoid it. Um, women are sexual beings. Sexuality is a form of human expression. Um, and there's a, a gross double standard that exists in how black and white women are viewed when expressing their sexuality in performance and art. Um, if it's Miley Cyrus or Britney Spears, they're loud and exactly. feminists for their ex- open expression. But that point of view, this woman's point of view, argues that we as black women should be less free um, simply to disprove a stereotype of us, um, and that's respectability politics and um, 
It, which the, respectability politics doesn't achieve the goal of proving our humanity. We know that. Um, and it's a line of thinking that leads to victim blaming because the very next step is to say if she hadn't been dressed like that, the assault wouldn't have happened. And um, I know, that's I... exactly the kind of line of thinking that needs to be dismantled. Yeah, because I was, I was a little offended with comment, and I could tell and there were only like maybe eight of us in the room. And I could see how everybody else was uneasy and uncomfortable with her comment. He said, well, you know what? When we're going to do a show on this, and that's going to be one of my questions, my guess. And I was taken back. But, of course, remember, I had to be neutral. I couldn't – I didn't want to argue a point with her or say, how dare you. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, I think that – and I agree with you that – that stereotype is damaging, and it does cause issues. Mm-hmm. But my other, you know, my other question is: Do we see more women of color? No, no. Erase that question. Let me just ask you this: Are black girls, and black women, and let's just say Latino, Asian women of color, are they over-sexualized in the media? Oh, I would say yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Without a doubt. I think it's a disservice that we have perpetuated over the years. Um, and I, I want to say something because I think we've, we've all sort of shared a story at some point. We've heard a story today. And I, I want to say whoever's out in your listening audience is that we believe you. I think that's exactly. really important because I don't know who's mm-hmm. listening far and wide, but I think we have to have the conversation that we, we believe you and you don't have to have a story. We believe you. And I, I think, I'm sure at the end of the conversation, we will have some resources, but there are really wonderful rape, abuse, incest, national networks out there that they can call for resources if they don't have someone within their own network to reach. And I think it's important. I know Rain is out there. There are other within the New York, New Jersey area, but they need to know that they can talk to someone and they can talk to someone anonymously. If you know, let me ask you this. What are your thoughts on like, if you had like a forum? where they would have, like, maybe, uh, and we were planning to do this in 2019, our forum for girls and women of color. What if there was, like, a um, an event where they had an opportunity to go to presentations or panel discussions and where they had the, the um, panel members talk about these issues, talk about it's okay, and, you know, let the audience know, these young women specifically, that, we believe you. We believe you, and you don't have to give me details. You don't have to tell me everything that happened. But you, you know, your experiences are real. They happened. We and I think you made an excellent point because I think one of the biggest problems with young women and not coming forward is the fear that no one's going to believe them. Oh, oh, please, no! You brought that on yourself. Look at the way you dress, and. What are your thoughts if Absolutely. you think that would help? And, and then and then what happens to the young woman that enjoyed it, right? Because that does happen. Mm-hmm. What happens to the young woman that mm-hmm. doesn't have a voice through the power of her sexuality? What happens to mm-hmm. the young woman that doesn't even know what an orgasm is or what happened or, or any of the circumstances? I think part of this reclaiming for women and having a voice is having empowerment over our bodies and that our mm-hmm. bodies are valued. And, and, and that's going to take decades, but I think letting women know it is okay 
to feel good during sex and, and what even consensual sex is because I don't think that 10, 11, 12-year-old kids know what that is. Right? They, they, I don't think 18-year-olds know what that is. I, I, I think mm-hmm. some adults don't know what consensual sex is. So I think we have to have a lot of that conversation and that masturbation is healthy and good and understanding your body is healthy and good. And, and really taking away some of that religious or spirituality shame that we have because I think many of us have grown up in a culture that has shamed self-pleasurement and then when That's a rape right. or some other situation has occurred that was not unconsensual, we have even more fear and, and more discourse. And, and then, you know, in some cultures we're also talking about FGM and, you know, people have even bigger fear because their body is not important, is not valued. And so when we're talking about women's bodies and women of color's bodies, they deserve to have power, and they need to take that power and harness it because they should not have a backseat. They should not have a back voice. And I think giving that opportunity to say, I believe you, but I also want you to have a good sexual life moving forward, that, no one is saying that. Mm-hmm. No one That's right. Saying, mm-hmm. Here, here's condoms. This is where you can get an abortion. This is where you can get this, where you can get that. But no one is saying, how do you heal as a sexual person? How do you mm-hmm. have a good sex life for the rest of your life? And to start out that way so you own your body, that your body does not belong to this mass-produced media. You know, that is such a, that's a brilliant point. I love that point it's because it is a big issue. And then I think the other thing, too, is because of the way maybe some women are raised. I guess it's a generational issue, but <laughs> the fear that I'm supposed to masturbate, that, you're not supposed to totally enjoy the sex, do you're just like delirious with it. And do you think, I mean, and you made an excellent point, do you think that sometimes that's a roadblock too? I, I absolutely think that that is a roadblock because you, you are a thing, you are not a person. And this is not just sexual, but it is in many voices. Your voice is not heard. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, Anyone has a hard time with sexuality. We live in a culture that is incredibly repressed. We come from a system that is historically repressed. We, we have to start erasing those lines. We have to start talking about healthy sex lives. And, if, you know, we, we want to have the conversation with, you know, victims. We also have to talk to the individuals that are doing the assault and what is in their mental health status, what is in their sexual behaviors that, that needs to be healed. Well, what about, what do we do when we have the individuals? Let's see, we have a young lady who is very sexual. She enjoys sex. Um, she likes to experiment. She likes little S&M. She likes, you know, let's just say she likes the bondage. She likes to be tied up. She likes to be taken to the brink. And she's with a guy who takes her to that brink, but he goes overboard, and they have code words, and he doesn't listen to the code words. And it ends up being a sexual assault in the end. So I think your point in saying, in, and I say to the, you know, the conversation that it is okay to enjoy sex and to um, express themselves. But what do we do when a young lady just is enjoying herself, but it crosses that line, and she's afraid forward and say that I was sexually assaulted, or I was with a friend and we were doing A, B, C, and D, and then he got too rough and ended up into a rape. What do we do? How do we let those young women know that it's okay to still come forward? 
because it, the situation may have ended in a way that she did not expect it. It was out of control to some degree, in her opinion. How do we say to these young women, it's okay if you were in the act, in the middle, you were enjoying yourself, and somebody crossed the line with you, and it turned um, into sexual or rape? Uh, this is Lada Murti. Um, I think to begin with, and, and this is something I did uh, recently write about as well, I think this is where media can have a powerful role um, in in showing that uh, that sex is not just about consent but about verbal communication um, right. as well, that it's not simply a physical act. Because what I get really tired of, especially when, you know, we are trying to cultivate this culture of consent, which I think is good. But when you look at the media, it's like usually, right, mainstream media, but, um, you know, there's there's porn as well. But it's like there's just so many things taken for granted, right? There's never any verbal communication. The man usually just leans over and starts kissing the woman, right? And then right. music starts playing. And, <laughs> and they have sex. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no verbal communication. There's no, I mean, and and so I, I think that's where media could play a big role in it, because – Fortunately or unfortunately, I think for most uh, most of us growing up today, um, you know, myself included, what is our introduction to sex? It's the media. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's where, you know, the media could really play a, a powerful role in, in showing more of that consent, that communication, so then women and men know it is okay to speak up. Uh, at, at any point and talk about these things as they are happening, not, you know, just before. Do any of you ever recall the book by Masters and Johnson titled Our Bodies, Ourselves? It was a, yes, that's it was a, one of my favorite books. Okay, I love that book. Me too. I'm like, I went to uh, high school here in Jersey City, um, Academy of St. Aloysius, and we had to take what we called, and I don't remember the proper name of the course, but it was like a sex religion course. And we used that book, Our Bodies, Ourselves. It was an excellent book where young ladies would learn about STDs. They learn about, um, you know, the sex, the about rape, birth control, everything. Everything I believe a young woman would need to know is in that book. And when they first gave us that book in St. Al's and we went through the course, we were like, oh, my goodness. I think we were in the 10th grade. And, of course, we were stunned because there are pictures in the book talking about sex and and this and that and, and orgasms and your menstruation. And, I mean, it, would just, it went covered everything. And the book to me is like... I think every young girl, preteen, whatever, his mom should give her this book as a gift at some point in her lifetime before she turns 18. That's just my opinion. But I found that book to be such a great resource. And when I talked to other young women, when they were talking about issues and experiences, they never heard of the book. But when we took the course, um, they explained it A to Z. And it talked about being forced... Um, and uh, Dr. Montecalvo, who, who said they liked the book? It was their favorite book. 
I did. Um, um, that was me. I yeah, and that book, let me tell you the one thing I liked about the book, and I don't know, I haven't seen the recent issues of it, uh, new editions, but it talked about rape and, 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 you know, forced sex and, you know, no means no. Um, I think if we had more books like that, I think if there was a major event and you invited the young women, of course, with parental consent, to come to an event and they each received a copy, I think that's a start of letting them see because Dr. Montecalvo, to me, the book is very honest. It's very open. It doesn't force any young woman to think of their bodies, their breasts, or being sexually aroused with shame. It it just it's like a natural um, it's just like a natural book. What do you thought? What are your thoughts? Um, I, I think have that to look at a recent version of it. I haven't looked at one recently, and I would have to really look at the book to make sure that it has a really good cross section of women, uh, because I think some you know earlier editions were definitely you know white feminism, and it wasn't really uh, a cross you know, cross-embrace book that's a reality for many women and women of color, I think that we, you would have to really look at that book. I think I've given it out to my nieces over the decades. Um, also, the, the American Girl Doll Collection has a very similar book. Um, right. There are, are several different books. I, Roby Harris has a really good book out there that talks about the different bodies. And I know the National Sex Ed Network does – uh, some work around it. I, I want to talk about Tanya Bass. She is a sex educator from North Carolina. She does some amazing work around this uh, issues of really body autonomy. And I think more of that conversation has to come forth. And, and giving young women of color representation that goes beyond the media, that they have a reference to look at. Say, oh, this is what my body can look like. This is this is where I own myself and I get to share myself in a pleasurable way or not. I, I think That's more right. of that has to happen. Now let me let me ask you this excellent point. You know, when we start talking about cultures and beliefs and values, now we all know that there are cultural ideas about marriage and gender gender roles within each group. Sometimes they make it difficult for some women of color, um, particularly those women who live in, like, close-knit communities, to understand that when they're involved in certain type of situations that uh, end up being abused, that it is actually abuse that they're, in, that they're going through where they may think it's normal, it's okay. So, for example, in some cultures, let's say, if, if, or any culture, if a wife says to a husband or one young woman says to a boyfriend, I don't want to be bothered tonight, leave me alone, and he forcibly takes her. And she thinks it's okay for him to do that. How do we correct that? I mean, do we need to correct it? Is it anything? Is it a conversation that needs to be had? I mean, what do we do with this? Hi, this Any is Priscilla. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Yes, I think the conversation goes deeper because if um, it is so in her community, in her society, um, it is taught that you must be submissive to your husband, and if your husband wants sex tonight or your partner wants sex tonight, you must uh, do those things. It's going to be hard to um, tell her that you shouldn't be submissive to your husband 
um, we have to be very careful with how we how that conversation is operationalized, how you have that discussion with that woman, especially if there's a religion, um, religious piece that's tied to it. Um, What we can do is educate her um, on what means, what, what I'm uncomfortable, what do I do with that? Um, How do I share that with someone? Here, um, she may not be able to say no to her husband, but is there, goes back to my word of a confidant, is there someone, other woman in my community that I can share these, this experience with that will help me to understand how do I manage those things? Um, what do I do with the experience when I have it? Who do I talk to about that and not have to suppress the feelings that come with it? It's a very, um, it's a conversation you want to be very careful with um, in regard when you're having that with a female. Exactly. Good point. But let me let me move on and ask you this. Um, or let's make this point. According to the Women of Color Network, victims of sexual violence, everybody responds differently um, to their own experiences. And they go on to note that responses to sexual victimization exist on a spectrum. And they can range from denial to shame to substance use to anger um, forgiveness, um, some women uh, tend to go out and become, you know, more involved with others sexually just because. Now, for, women, for a woman of color, often her response is both individual and a cultural one. They go on to note that a woman of color may have to confront both her experience and also other issues with respect to protect her family, you know, honor or community mistreatment by law enforcement, and conforming to cultural values and norms. They go on to further state that a history of racism and oppression contributes to the challenges faced by women of color rape survivors. So here's my question to you, to everyone. We know how, as they noted, the Women of Color Network noted, how everyone experienced their experience is completely different. Their reaction what they go through afterwards is, is totally the healing process for everyone is different. You know, my question is, what are some of the psychological, emotional, physical, and social traumas that girls and women of color experience as a result of, you know, assault, rape, um, molestation, harassment? I'm sorry. <laughs> this is Yvonne Taylor. Again, I mean, I think anybody um, who goes through this experiences um, issues with intimacy and trust, um, trust in others and in yourself. Um, but um, the additional forced silence within um, cu- our cultures and communities of um you know, of color, um, and because of the stereotypes we battle and the fear of betraying our culture by speaking out as additional layers of trauma and fear of being ostracized from our communities. That's true. That is, that is excellent. That's a good point. So mm-hmm. here's my next question. How do the psychological, emotional, physical, and social traumas affect the overall well-being and growth of girls and women of color? Like, what happens? 
you know, I, this is Nikisha here. Um, one of the biggest psychological um, effects it has on a woman, which also ties back to your first question, is um, depression. We know that within the African-American community, um, depression is one of the main mental health issues that we face. Um, along with depression comes anxiety. Um, and so with the anxiety and depression um, comes also suicide ideation. And so these are some of the effects, just in the name of few, some of the effects that it has where the girl can go into depression where, you know, she she's having issues sleeping at night. Um, she's worried about the, every sound that she hears. Um, what do I now do with this pain that I have on my inside, all these emotions? Do I just take my life um, because I don't know how to handle this? Um, there also is post-traumatic stress disorder that the individual face, mm-hmm. um, PTSD, where they're having flashbacks, they're having irritability, someone says something to them, they have a smell, and they're not, all of a sudden, they're triggered. So there are lots of um, effects that it has on the woman. They may also have psychosomatic symptoms that they experience, um, that they're hearing things that's not really, um, they're hearing things and they're feeling things. My gut hurts me but my head also hurts me, but I also feel depressed. So there's many effects that it has um, on them as well. Another effect it has on them is um, a lot of individuals, in order to deal with the pain and the events and the experiences that they have um, had, is they turn to substance. Um, and right. so if I use the substance in this moment, my pain, I won't have to feel. I'll numb myself. And I won't have to deal with all the issues that there. I won't have to deal with reality. But once that that substance wears off, the reality comes back. So then my level of tolerance increases um, for more of that substance. And so it leads to more and more problems that's there if it's not addressed. Excellent point. You know, it's good because according to the National Crime Victimization Survey, and your response is right on target, Noted, 94% of women who were raped experienced symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder during the two weeks following the rape. 30% of women with symptoms of PTSD nine months after the rape. 33% of the women who were raped contemplate suicide. Um, 13% attempt suicide. They go on to note that 70% of rape or sexual assault victims experience moderate to severe distress. Um, a larger percentage than for those who have uh, any other violent crime. They also noted, like you noted, the um, substance abuse with the drugs. Um, 38% of the victims of sexual violence experience work or school problems, which can include significant problems with a boss, a coworker, or a peer. And I think that's really relevant with regard to someone who's experienced sexual harassment in the work environment as well. They noted mm-hmm. that, um, let me, I'm on to. 84% of survivors were victimized by an intimate partner experience professional emotional issues, including moderate to severe increased problems at work or school. So I think another issue also is that the experiences of girls and women of color are, of course, the board unique than other than white women. And I believe that when they are involved in a situation with abuse, rape, molestation, incest, to that degree. I think that on top of dealing with what, let's say, a white woman may deal with, 
she has these added burdens on top of it as a woman or girl of color. Am I wrong with that? Somebody tell me. What do you thought? Is that a wrong uh, assumption or, or focus? Is it that because as a, as a girl as a girl or a woman of color, you already have unique needs that are different, um, and your experiences are different. So let's add on top of those experiences. She's now been victimized by an assault or rape or um, molestation issue. Does that mean that this girl or woman of color is now carrying heavier burden than what you know, a girl or woman would, call, would carry? Or am I, is that too far-fetched? Um, Loretta Moore here. You, I'm thinking you're saying that there's another layer on her on, right, on her experiences. Like, uh, I think there. I think there. There is. There's another layer on her experience as opposed to a white woman's experience, and it makes the situation much more critical for her. You know, when it happens to her, to a I black girl so too. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anybody else want to add into in that? This is Nakisha. Um, I sorry. I'm, I wanted to add into there. I think you're right on with that in the sense that minorities they have what um, having gone to a few training on community and poverty. What we look at, what they see with minorities, that they have what we call interlocking problems. So if a woman of color um, faced sexual assault, it's not just sexual assault that she's facing um, or molestation. She's also facing like poverty. She's facing um, truancy or any other thing that may be there that may be of issues for women of color. And so as another, the Caucasian culture may be able to navigate those problems because they may have the resources at hand um, to help them with that. Women of color may not necessarily have that, those resources that's there. So we now have interlocking problems on top of each other. She, the parent may be allowing for this sexual assault to happen um, in order to make ends meet, um, in order for them to be able to survive um, in the community that they're in. So I think you are, you, you, you're right there. Okay, good. Okay, thanks. Does anybody want to add anyone else, anything else? I'm going to go to our last talking point in question, um, which is going to focus on children. Uh, being assaulted. Is there anything else anyone would like to add on the general conversation? Um, I think this is Yvonne. I, I just wanted to add too to be thinking about when we think about women um, and girls of color to, to be mindful to think about um, the LBGTQ community and trans women in particular of color because they're you know extremely vulnerable um, and have few, even fewer resources. Um, and are experiencing rates of murder and suicide at even higher, you know, um, rates because of that vulnerability and invisibility. I think one of the shows that we're going to host when we start Visibility Talk talk Radio is addressing those there with that community because it's important um, that their stories also be heard. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. you're right, it's so limited and resource limited amount of information and resources for them. Um, that, that's an excellent point. Thank you. Mm-hmm. What I'm going to move into now, and this is our last talking point, then we'll wrap up the show, um, is to talk about, because this is so important, you know, signs that a child may have been sexually abused. Um, there are issues where 
And I'm just going to briefly go over, like, the physical, behavioral, emotional signs. And this is for parents to be aware and to just pay attention to your children. Um, signs of trauma to the genital area. This is explained bleeding, bruising, or blood on sheets. Um, these are physical signs. It could be a sexually transmitted infection with regard to the behavior of the child. You may see sexual behavior that's appropriate for the child's age. Um, bedwetting or soiling themselves, not wanting to be left alone, um, tries to avoid moving their clothes, removing their clothes to change or to bathe. Some of the emotional signs to note, this talk about or knowledge of sexual topics, resuming behaviors they had grown out of, such as thumb-sucking, nightmares or fear of being alone at night, excessive worry or fearfulness, and I think it's important um, to know that. And they go on to talk about signs that an adult is hurting a child. Um, you know, you want, number one, you want to keep the children safe. Um, and that can be challenging at times because many perpetrators actually go after to abuse children in positions of trust. 93% of child sexual assault victims, they know they're perpetrators. So trying to keep a child away from a perpetrator, you mean major changes in that particular family's, you know, routine. Um, even if someone's outside of that child's family, um, they go on to give warnings to be cautious of an adult who spends time with children and exhibits following behaviors. Does not respect boundaries or listen when someone says no. Now remember, it says to be cautious of an adult who spends time with children. I um, mean, touching that a child or child's parent, parent or guardian, as indicated as unwanted, tries to be a child's friend rather than filling an adult role in the child's life, does not seem to have age-appropriate relationships, talks with children about their personal problems or relationships, gives a child gifts without occasion or reason, spends a lot of time with your child or the child you know. So my question to you guys, my question is this, how do we protect our girls, our preteens, and our teens, and young women being victimized by assault and molestation um, as they grow? Um, go ahead. No, 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 doctor, go, go ahead. I was going to say, the con- to begin, you have to have an open conversation where your child can feel safe to come and speak with you about what they have experienced. Teaching your child from a young age um, what's good touch versus bad touch. Um, Not being afraid to have a discussion with them on um, body parts um, and people touching them, who's allowed to touch them and who's not allowed to touch them. Not forcing a child to give a hug to someone when they say, they don't want to hug that person in this moment. You know, ex- um, have a discussion with them. What was the reason they didn't want to have that hug with that person? Why did they feel uncomfortable with the individual? Um, being able to talk with the your teenagers on what's safe sex versus what's not safe sex. What are your boundaries? What are your limitations? Um, when you feel uncomfortable, what do you do with that? Who do you talk to um, in regards to those things that you've experienced? Exactly. That, that's Anybody my start else? list. Excellent. 
Excellent point. Anybody else like that? Anything? Um, this is Yvonne. Um, I agree with all of that. And I think um, normalizing the body is really important. Um, and also, um, never completely, um, or how do I say this, always being open to, to, to the recognition that, you know, like you said, 93% of um, these of sexual abuse happens with, with people you know. Um, so understanding that, um, that can be your uncle or your friend or your cousin and um, having a dialogue with your, your kid um, to say those kinds of things um, so that they know that even if it's somebody that you're close to, you'd be willing to hear them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, ladies, it's been a wonderful show and I would just like to add, I think to all of our listeners to know that your voices are important they must be heard. Um, you don't let anyone shame you into feeling bad about um, experiencing assault, rape, molestation. Um, yes, are there any of you, would you like to add any um, thoughts or anything that you'd like to leave out with? Um, this is Autumn Martin. I just, I just want to emphasize again that this is not just a problem for girls and women. That this is everyone's problem, and we need to let uh, boys and young men know, I think vocally and repeatedly, that, that this is not okay. They need to respect us as equals and, and treat our bodies with respect. Um, and we need to all know and learn how to admit doing or being wrong and, and apologizing, sincerely apologizing. Exactly. Any, Dr. John, would you like to add anything? Um, yeah, I would just like to say, I, to piggyback off what was just said, um, definitely we, we need to continue with the conversation, make sure that it's open, that if anyone has faced sexual harassment or abuse, that, they're, that we're able to talk to them. And just to, again, emphasize to, um, I mean, since this is a show about, you know, women and girls, that they are more than just a pretty face. And their bodies are made for more than just being beautiful or being sexual. Um, and that, you know, if, if they do face any kind of sexual harassment, we have to make sure that they are provided, that, you know, people are provided with um, accessibility to get help, to, to be able to talk to someone. And also, too, that we need to provide advocacy for even the people who um, are the sexual harassers too. I mean, there just needs to be a larger amount of support system. Um, and it's no longer a men's issue or a woman's issue, but it's a societal issue where, you know, um, the Me Too campaign has shown that this is not just something that happened to one person or is isolated, but everyone, everyone feels the pain, feels the anger, and it's just has become the supportive system. I mean, yes, it does have its um, problems and its holes, but overall, you know, this is a societal issue that is of concern. Loretta Moore here. I'd just like to say that uh, they need to know that they have the control and the power over their lives. No one but that person holds the power over his or or her life. And no one else. No one else. Mm -hmm. 
Miss Moore, I did want to ask you this, and I forgot. Um, with your characters in your books that have experienced, like, sexual assault or rape or attack, how did they deal with it? Just give uh, us one, like, one example. Let's see, one. One carried it away with her, and uh, she left home and left the baby that she had as a result of having been, been become raped, having been raped. She left her baby with her parents. She left home. She never told the parents who the person was who did this to her, and uh, she never came back. And at the very end of the book, she was on her way back because she had heard that the person who did this had passed away, had died, so she wanted to come back home. And on the way back home, she and this man she was with um, had an accident. She never made it home. She died in this accident. Oh. So, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't tell hmm. us the name of the book because I want anybody to buy it and read it. Um, <laughs> yeah, you want the, good, you want the I, name of it? No, no, because I want to be surprised. No, oh, don't tell me. Oh, okay. I'm just, I'm just, yeah, I want to be surprised. Well, that will be Miss Morphe guest on visibility next year, so we can go in detail. I'll have time to read the book, read, read her books by then. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I like to okay. say to um, Dr. Castillo, Miss Taylor, Dr. Montecalvo, Miss Moore, Dr. Murdy, I thank you so very much for your time tonight, for your input. I think this dialogue was phenomenal. I think we covered a lot of topics. Of course, you know we're going to have a part two of this show, Under Visibility, and I would like to invite you all back to be guests um, because there's so much more material and discussion, I think, that we can have about this topic. I think that everyone gave such wonderful contributions tonight. I'm elated and overjoyed, and I cannot thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for including me. Thank you. Yes, and thank you for having that forum. Yes, thank you, and we will. I will be in touch with all of you, and um, and with you know with archives and information. But thank you. Um, I'm going to move on now, listeners. What I would like to say is to all of our listeners here, um, these are resources for you to have. So, if you need to take a few minutes to get a pen to write down, you can feel free to go do that. I'm going to give you a list of um, phone numbers, resources, and websites to help you if you've been a victim of sexual assault, molestation, rape, or any other type of sexual violence. Um, So I'll give you a few minutes to get a pen, to write everything down, and while you're going to get your pen and paper, what I would like to do is just to remind everyone, our listeners, that the National Girls and Women of Color Council has a call for submissions that closes on March 31st, 2018. Anthology titled Our Voices, Our Stories, Advancing, Celebrating, Embracing, and Empowering Girls and Women of Color. And you can find complete details about that call for submissions on the website of um, the National Girls and Women of Color Council. And that website is ngwcc.org. So consider writing a short story, poem, essay, play, commentary. Um, We're open to accepting any topic. As long as what you're writing focuses in on advancing, celebrating, embracing, and empowering girls and women of color, you can talk about education, you can talk about um, sexual assault, you can talk about life, love, sex, um, whatever your thoughts bring to your mind and you find yourself putting together really well on paper. Um, so remember, go to our website, ngwcc.org. 
I believe it's under anthology. The other announcement that I wanted to make to listeners is that um, on December 17th, um, in collaboration with Complexity Talk Radio, in in collaboration with the National Girls Month Color Council, we joined forces to produce a new weekly talk radio show titled Visibility. The purpose of Visibility is to begin and continue a much-needed dialogue in a national forum designed specifically for girls and women of color. Now, one of the reasons why NGWCC, which is the National Girls and Women of Color Council, um, we do everything kind of do it in the, using the Internet, is because of the fact that we want to have a national and an international reach of girls and women of color. So the show will begin airing in February of 2018. The first series that we will do in February in recognition of History Month is titled We Are Our Sister Keepers, Black Girls and Women in Each Other in the Millennium. It'll be a four-episode series for that month. Then in the month of March, we'll air regular shows beginning with International um, Women's Month. We'll have a little mini-series then, and thereafter... We'll have the regular shows, which will air each week. And our guests will include educators, scholars, researchers, bloggers, uh, writers, playwrights, um, entrepreneurs, mothers, grandmothers, um, advocates, politicians, organizations, economists. We'll have a series of guests. We'll have interviews with authors. Um, Those in academia want to share their research or a newly published book or an article. Um, our goal here is to discuss, talk about the issues, um, find remedies and solutions for many of the issues that affect the psychological, emotional, physical, and social well-being growth of girls and women of color. So look forward to that, and we'll be putting information out about that soon. Okay, so for my listeners, I do hope you have your pen and paper ready. Let me give you the resources to contact. In the event that you've been a victim sexual assault, rape, molestation, or any form of sexual violence. There's a national sexual assault hotline. The number is 1-800-656-4673. Or you can chat online by going to online.rainn.org. And I will also put these uh, resources on our blog for NGWCC and Complexity Talk Radio, and I'll um, send it out over social media. Um, RAIN, the name RAIN is the organization, Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. It's the nation's largest anti-violence organization, and they created that, actually created the National Sexual Assault Hotline. So remember the numbers, 1-800-656-4673. In addition to RAIN, um, there's a National Teen Dating Abuse Helpline. That number is one eight six six three three one nine four seven four, and that is for the National Teen Dating Abuse Helpline. The next number is for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That is one eight hundred seven nine nine seven two three three, and I'll repeat it: the National Domestic Violence Hotline. We also, I also want to share this one with you, the National Runaway Switchboard, 
which is 1-800-786-2929. So please, I, I beg of you to reach out if you need the help, um, provided you with the resources, and they'll also be on our website. So before I close tonight, guys, what I always like to do is a commentary on the show and the topic we discussed. So here goes. Regardless of when, how, or where you may experience sexual assault, molestation, sexual harassment, or any form of abuse, know that you do not have to suffer in silence. Your psychological, emotional, physical, and social and growth are paramount. It's not your fault. Reach out for help to talk. Know that you're somebody, you have value, you have worth, and you have the support. And as Earl, as our guest noted early in the show, we believe you. You just reach out and someone will be there. Do not feel ashamed. You have a voice. It is important to be heard. Hold your head high. Tell someone. You go to the authorities. If you have concerns with them, you can talk to a pastor at your church or any church. You know, there's centers rain and all the hotline numbers I just gave. Talk to a teacher, a friend, Aaron, tell someone. You do not have to suffer in silence. Do not be afraid of someone not believing your story because of the stigmas and the stereotypes you read and hear about in the society that we live in. Your voice, again, is important. Your experiences are real, and perpetrators must be held accountable, responsible, and punished accordingly. Your body is your temple. And if someone takes advantage of you, set the record straight. And here's something else to remember, listeners. If you're not comfortable sharing your story in a forum, then you don't have to. Do not feel pressured to do so. However, if you feel that you want to share your story, then feel free to do so. Everyone reacts, interacts, and acts differently regarding situations involving, you know, rape or molestation or assault or sexual violence. So it's important for you to heal, and your healing is important. One of the shows that we're going to do in February, I'm sorry, Visibility Starts Next February, is that we're going to talk about healing after suffering through traumas of this nature, psychologically, emotionally, physically. Focus on you. Believe in yourself. Know that regardless of what happened, how it happened, where it happened, or with who, that we do believe you. And that is so important for you to understand. Um, and, I, and I'm just going to keep saying this to you because I think it's so important. People do care, and they're concerned, and they want to offer you help. All you have to do is reach out, and you will care. They'll support you. They will embrace you, and they will help you in and or continue the healing process. If you have to, remember I told you I'm not a therapist, I'm not a counselor, but call me if you must. You call me, and I will get you in touch with the right individuals who can help. If you need to talk, feel free. My 800 number is 866-829-0163. You can contact me through the blogs or the, or the, the um, Facebook or the uh, website, National Girls Women's Color Council or Complexity Talk. What I want to say to you from my heart is that I will help you find resources, people, and will stay by your side so you can lean on me 
until you get where you need to be. I am a night out, and I'm extending my hand out to you in friendship to be a resource to help you as you go through and, you know, go through the healing and deal with the issues. So with the hand extended in friendship, all you have to do is just reach out and call. It doesn't have to be an issue involving sexual assault, molestation, if you're going through other issues. Um, this is one of the reasons why Dr. Jung and I started the National Girls and Women of Color Council, because we want to make sure that your psychological, emotional, physical, social well-being and growth is where it needs to be for you individually. So think of Dr. Kobus as one of the individuals you can go to, um, because I I do care because I've seen and, and worked with so many young women who've been through so many experiences. And it, all it takes sometimes is just a conversation. You know, have a dialogue, sharing, talking. That's what's important. Know that you have a friend. And to all of you, I would like to say best wishes for, you know, a happy, healthy um, 2018 um, regardless of what's going on, you just remember that to find yourself for yourself as you keep rising to the top. And this is from me to all of you. Enjoy. Have a good night.
future. 